Good evening. This is Patrick Donahue. Appreciate you listening every week at this same time to Bible Crossfire. Uh, you can call in, ask a Bible question, make a Bible comment, discuss a particular scripture, discuss a particular Bible topic. Anything in the Bible is fair game. The only thing that we ask is we're going to let the Bible settle the question. Whatever the question is, whatever the issue is, whatever the Bible says settles this. Because God is our authority. Jesus is the Son of God. People say they believe Jesus is the Son of God, but do they really? If they really believe he's the Son of God, that means he's their authority. That means they're going to do what he says. They're going to follow his teachings. So many people say, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, but they don't follow his teachings. They may be out cheating on their wife or lying or cheating in business. They don't... Uh, they allow, allow gay marriage or women preachers or sprinkle babies for baptism or teach once saved, always saved, or uh, teach that you don't have to be baptized to be saved. They're not really making Jesus, the Son of God, their authority. While we're waiting on our first call, I thought we'd talk about 1 John chapter 2, one of those little Johns right before the book of Revelation. 1 John 2, 1 says, My little children, these things write I unto you, that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. You know what this verse is saying? Our goal should be to never sin. He says, I write unto you that you sin not. Our goal should then be perfection. No sin at all. Now, none of us reach that goal. But if that is our goal, perfection, then when we don't reach that goal, the goal commanded by 1 John 2, 1, we're going to be disappointed and repent. But if our goal is just, say, to maybe do 90% of what God says right, then we won't be disappointed when we sin. If we get 90% of it right, we won't be disappointed. We won't repent. So this is what God is saying in 1 John 2, 1. He writes unto us that we sin not. God expects us to live perfectly. Jesus is our example, and he lived perfectly. He was tempted just as any man is, Hebrews 4, 15, but yet without sin. We can do the same. It's possible. Do we do it? No. But every time we sin, it's our fault. It's because we chose to sin. If we set our goal at 90%, oh, well, I'm not raping anybody. I'm not murdering anybody. So I guess it won't, God won't mind if I go out and commit adultery one time. How would that fly? We see that won't fly. But then as we go through this verse, we see that when we do sin, we can be forgiven based upon the death of Christ. That's what that's talking about. 1 John 2, 1 says, And he, talking about Christ, is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Did you ever think about how that verse relates back to the Calvinistic position of the limited atonement? They really believe, the Calvinists, and this may surprise you, the Calvinists believe that Jesus only died for the elect. What's the elect? Those chosen of salvation. That Jesus only died for the saved. And they reason, well, it would be a waste for Jesus to die for anybody that's not going to be saved. <laughs> but it's not a waste because the fact that Jesus died for everybody means everybody has the opportunity to be saved. And so that means whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life, John 3, 16. If Jesus only died for a certain number of people, then those people are the only ones that could be saved. The ones he didn't die for, they would have no chance to be saved. God wanted everybody to have the opportunity, the choice. So Jesus died for everybody so that everybody would have that opportunity. 
And this verse proves the limited tone position by the Calvinists is absolutely false. He didn't just die for the Christians. He didn't just die for the saved. Saved. It says he, talking about Christ, is the propitiation for our sins. That's the Christians. That's the saved people. We'll call that the elect. But he says it's not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. You know, the Calvinists say that if you can contra- prove any one of their five points wrong, then the whole thing topples. Well, the whole thing topples. Because here, this verse conclusively proves that the limited atonement position is false, that Jesus didn't just die for the sins, uh, the, uh, for the sins of the Christians, verse two, but for the sins of the whole world, everybody else also. That means if all five points topple, that means that total depravity, original sin is false. That's the T in Tulip. You, unconditional election is false. Limited atonement, which we just proved false, is false. Irresistible grace, the I is proven false. And P, once saved, always saved, the perseverance of the saints is false because the Calvinist admits if you can prove one of those five false, all five, because they're interconnected, have to be false. Well, this clearly shows L, limited atonement is false. Jesus didn't just die for the Christian sins. He said he died for our sins, the Christians, but not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. You know, Hebrews 2.9 says, talking about Jesus, that he tasted death for every man. That's the quote. Jesus tasted death for every man. Either we're going to believe that straight up, exactly what it says, without any interpretation, or we're going to say that verse needs interpretation. And when it says Jesus tasted death for every man, it didn't mean every man. It meant only the Christians. You see, you don't really need to interpret the Bible. Not really, not in most cases. You just believe what it says straight up. When it says Jesus tasted death for every man, Hebrews 2.9, you just believe that. Needs no interpretation. You don't have to say there must be some reason why that means that Jesus only died for the Christians. You don't have to do that. All you got to do is just say it means exactly what it says, that Jesus tasted death for every man. So it goes right along here with 1 John 2.2, that Jesus didn't just die for the elect. He also died for the sins of the whole world. Even the atheist. Jesus died for the atheist. If he didn't, the atheist couldn't change his mind and be saved. He died for everybody. That's made clear by 1 John 2, verse 2. You see that? If you have a Bible question about that or comment, give us a call. That's what we're here for. Talk about your issues, what questions you might have. The number to call if you have a Bible question or comment is 877 655-6755. The number to call if you have a Bible question or comment is 877-655-6755. 1 John 2, 3 reads this way. And hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. I hear a lot of people talking about eternal security. How can we be confident in our salvation? Well, a lot of times when people are talking about that, they'll make up things to help them be confident in their salvation. Like, for example, once saved, always saved. I think there's probably a verse on every page, almost every page of the Bible that proves conclusively that once saved, always saved is false, yet people believe it because they want to feel confident or comfortable in their salvation. But that's not the way to feel confident or comfortable in your salvation. Here's the way. It says here, hereby we do know that we know him. How do we know that we know him? If we keep his commandments. So the way to be confident in your salvation is by keeping his commandments. The way to be confident in your salvation is if you are keeping his commandments, then you can be confident in your salvation. And if you're not keeping his commandments, then you should be confident that you're not saved.
That's the point of this. Hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. Verse 4, he that saith I know him and keepeth not his commandments, that's the reverse of verse 3, is a liar and the truth is not in him. People say, oh, it's not so important whether or not you keep God's commandments because everybody sins. So it must be okay to sin. But the Bible says here, if you say you know God or know Christ and you do not keep his commandments, you're a liar and the truth is not in you. So it is important. It's so important that the Bible is teaching here, if you're not keeping his commandments, you're not saved. You don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, with God. That's pretty clear, isn't it? A lot of people don't want to believe these passages. So they'll say, Let's, I, I don't agree with your interpretation. We're not interpreting these verses. We're just reading them, believing what they say straight up. You don't have to, when you get a letter from your girlfriend or a letter from your mom or a letter from your boss, you don't have to interpret it. It's not written in code. You don't have to take it down to the president of the local theological seminary to get him to interpret for you, do you? Well, why isn't God smart enough to write a letter to us that we can understand? Why do we have to interpret it? It's not written in code. You don't have to take it down to the president of the local theological seminary to figure out what these verses are saying. I mean, if it says, if you don't keep his commandments, you're a liar and the truth is not in you. What is there about that that's hard to understand that needs interpreting? Nothing. In John 14, 15, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. So, you know, I can show my wife, Carol, that I love her by kissing her. I can't do that for Jesus Christ. He's not here. The way I demonstrate to Jesus that I love him is by keeping his commandments. John 15, 14, Jesus said, if you are my friends, if you do whatsoever I command you. What does that imply? That implies that if we don't do what Jesus commands... We're not his friend. We don't have a relationship with him if we're not his friend. We can't be saved if we're not his friend. <clears throat> so if we're not keeping his commands, we're not going to be saved. People say, well, that's a work salvation. Well, not really. If it were a work salvation, then that's how we got to be saved. A work salvation. It's not really a work salvation. Work salvation is when you say what you do is what you're saved by, that you earn your salvation with your good works. No. When the Israelites walked around the walls of Jericho 13 times in seven days, the walking is not what knocked the walls down. The walking didn't earn the walls being knocked down. God knocked the walls down. But they still had to walk, didn't they? They had to walk, and then God knocked them down. The walking didn't do it. The walking's not what knocked them down, but they had to walk. It's the same way with trusting and obeying, believing and obeying Christ today. That's not the thing that does the trick. You don't earn your salvation by believing or obeying. Believing and obeying are just the conditions you have to meet in order to be saved by the death of Christ, which is the thing that earns your salvation, the thing that does the trick. Jesus said, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. So it's trust and obedience. James 2.24 says, you see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. So we're not talking about what does the trick, what earns your salvation, but we are saying that the conditions to meet are not faith only. James 2.24, it's also works. Trust and obey, just like the song says. If you have a Bible question or comment, give us a call at 877-655-6755. If you have a Bible question or comment, <clears throat> give us a call <clears throat> at 877-655-6755. Let's read verse 5 of 1 John 2. But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we 
that we are in him. Did you get that? The way your love for God is perfected, completed, is by keeping his word. That that reminds me of James 2.22, which reads this way. About Abraham, it says, Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect? So how was Abraham's faith made perfect or complete? By his works. What is 1 John 2, 5 saying? Our love for God is perfected or made complete by works. Can you be saved with an imperfect faith, an incomplete faith? Can you be saved with an imperfect love for God, an incomplete love for God? Of course not. This says that you complete your love for God by keeping his word. James 2.22 says you complete your faith in God by obeying him. So to have a complete faith, to have a complete love, which are absolutely necessary to being saved, it takes works. It takes obedience. 1 John 2.6, he that saith he abideth in him ought himself also so to walk even as he walked. Did you get that earlier? We read 1 John 2.1 that we're supposed to, it says, I write that you sin not. In other words, God expects, desires perfect obedience out of us. This is saying the same thing in verse 6. I want you to walk as he walked. Well, how did Jesus walk? Perfectly. That's how God wants us to walk, perfectly, without sin. That's what he expects out of us. Do any of us do that, live perfectly without sin? Only Jesus Christ did it. But if that's your goal is perfection, if you won't settle for anything less, then when you sin, you're going to be disappointed and repent and receive forgiveness. Alberto from Washington State, go ahead with your Bible question or comment, please. Yes, I recently started reading the Bible. Um, I just got past the first episode or the first chapter of Genesis. And there's a phrase that kind of got me confused. It talks about there will be a time that you would have to face or challenge um, either choosing your father, your 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 mom, your brother, or your sister. But it doesn't specify anything about like your, your about your wife. Do you know what passage you're talking about? Alberto, uh, what verse are you no, talking about? I, I think it's uh, somewhere after the first Genesis, after the first Genesis chapter, I think it's Exodus. I just can't remember specifically on which one it is. Well, I mean, I think a passage that's similar to what you're talking about is in Luke chapter eight, verse 18, verse 29, but it does mention the wife. Jesus says there, Barely I say unto you, there is no man that hath left house or parents or brethren or wife or children for the kingdom of God's sake, who shall not receive manifold more in this present time and in the world to come, life everlasting. So, Alberto, there's passages like this that talk about how that we have to put uh, God first before family. As a matter of fact, uh, Luke 14 26 says, if any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, in his own life also he cannot be my disciple. These verses, Alberto, are saying that we have to love God more than family, even our parents, our children, our spouse. And what that means is, it's not that you don't love family. It means that compared to God, you in effect hate your family. You don't love them near as much. And it means that you're going to put God first in all situations. Right? If your dad says he's going to kick you out of the house, you serve the Lord, you got to go ahead and leave the house and serve the Lord. You follow what I'm saying? 
Yeah. So is that what you're talking about, Alberto? The passages that talk about how we got to put God first, even before our family? Is that what you're talking about? I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there we have two of them, Luke 18, 29 and 30. And then that passage at Luke 14, I, I read a while ago. Got to put God first, even before your wife. What if my wife, Carol, says to me, if you don't quit serving the Lord, I'm going to leave you. Well, I have to let her leave. I can't leave her, but I got to keep serving the Lord. And she decides to leave me because I'm serving the Lord. That's on her. But I can't leave her and I got to keep serving the Lord. Now, I know my wife. She's not going to say that. That was just an illustration, an example. Okay, Alberto? Yeah. Alberto, okay. we got, appreciate your call. You got anything else you want to ask about or talk about? Um, not on the top of my head right now. Um, again, I just started reading the Bible, so I'm just kind of, well, in the, in the beginning of Genesis, it also talks about how they live up to be like 600 years old. Um, and, but then after as time goes by, then they start living 106 or they start dying sooner. Um, yeah, here's how, here's how I've heard that explained. I've heard that explained that all those ages are before the flood and that there was possibly a vapor canopy before the flood that came down in the flood. And while the vapor canopy that was up in the atmosphere, people could live longer. But I'm not sure if that's the right answer. It's just a possibility. But all of those old ages were before the flood. And after the flood, the ages start coming down to the, what we think of as normal today. Appreciate your call, Alberto. You have a good weekend. I right, thank you. All right, bye. Appreciated that call from Alberto. When when he called, we were talking about how in First John chapter two verse six we ought to walk. It says we ought to walk even as he walked. Well, how did Jesus walk perfectly? Well, so his example, the example we should follow, is perfection. When that what First Peter two twenty one and twenty two says. It says, for even here and too were you called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who did no sin, neither was any guile found in his mouth. So this verse is saying, our example is Christ. Christ lived perfectly. What it's trying to say is you need to live perfectly. That's what you're supposed to do. Follow Christ, follow his example, live perfectly. Now, does God know that we're going to sin? Yeah, he knows that. But he still says, I want you to live perfectly. He because it's possible, and he expects you to do that. And then when we fail to do that, when we sin even one time, we need to be disappointed and repent of that so we can get forgiveness. And if we're not trying to live perfectly, we're not going to be disappointed and repent when we sin. If you have a Bible question or comment, the lines are wide open. The number is 877-655-6755. If you have a Bible question, give us a call, 877 655 Six seven five five. Back to First John two. Let me read verses seven and eight. It says, "Brethren, I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment which ye had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which ye have heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is past, and the true light shineth till now. Now, based upon what follows." This is just a, uh, I'm not sure of this, I guess. It's just an educated guess. Based upon what follows, I'm thinking the new commandment he's talking about here is John 13, 34. Because Jesus said in John 13, 34, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. I think the old commandment was love the other person as you love yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus 
makes it even harder or calls it to an even higher calling on our love. He just said, don't just love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as I have loved you, which is even more. And I think that possibly is the new commandment also. That's definitely the new commandment in John 13, 34. I think it's possibly the new commandment here in 1 John 2, because notice what follows verses 9 through 11. He that saith he is in the light and hateth his brother is in darkness even until now. He that loveth his brother abideth in the light, and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. But he that hateth his brother is in darkness and walketh in darkness, and knoweth not whither he goeth, because that darkness hath blinded his eyes. So Christians will will love their brother. Hating your brother is totally inconsistent with being a Christian. That's what 1 John 2, 9 through 11 is saying. You know, 1 John 3, verse 15. Let me read that. It's interesting on this in the same connection. 1 John 3, 15 says, Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. You know what this is in effect saying is, is that if you hate your brother, you've committed the sin of murder in your heart. That's what it's basically saying. But back in the Old Testament times, when a person committed murder, he was subject to the death penalty. He was put to death, hanging, stoning, whatever. If you murder somebody, you were put to death. But if you hated your brother, even though that was in effect, murder in the heart, you weren't put to death for that. You weren't subject to the death penalty. There was a different penalty. Now, why am I bringing that up? Because when we think about Matthew nineteen nine, whoever puts away their wife except it be for fornication and marries another commits adultery. If your spouse commits fornication, then you may divorce them for that and remarry. But if they any other reason for your divorce, then it's unscriptural divorce, and you can't remarry. The divorce is not approved of by God. But then in Matthew 5, 28, people say, yeah, but if you look upon a woman to lust after her, you have committed adultery already in your heart. And they'll say, so if my spouse lusts after somebody else, they've committed adultery in their heart, therefore I can divorce them according to Matthew 19, 9. No, we need to see this illustration. I'm going over in 1 John three fifteen. If you murder literally, physically, actively in the Old Testament, the penalty was death. But if you murdered in the heart by hating, you didn't get the death penalty. You see, there's a difference in murder, actual murder, and murder in the heart. Similarly, there's a difference in actual adultery, the physical sexual act, adultery, and adultery in the heart. It's not the same penalty. One is actual adultery, the action, the physical act. The other is adultery in the heart. Are they both sins? Yes. But just like only actual murder was subject to the death penalty in the Old Testament, only actual physical sexual adultery, not adultery in the heart, is subject to Jesus' exception in Matthew 19, 9, that your spouse can divorce you for that. So when people say, well, my spouse committed adultery in the heart, I can divorce him for that. No, you can't. Only if they commit physical adultery, fornication, can you divorce them for that. Now, let's read two or three more verses. Let's read 12 through 14 of 1 John 2. It says, I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I write unto you, fathers, because you have known him that is from the beginning. I write unto you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write unto you, little children, because you have known the father. I write unto you, fathers, because you have known him that is from the beginning. So Christians are to overcome the devil. That's one of the main points of this passage I just read. James 4, 7 says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. We have to overcome the devil. I think this passage in, in uh, James 4 is helping us here. 
if we'll resist the devil, he'll flee from us. You know, the devil's going to try to be successful in tempting us. If we keep, oh, if we keep uh, succumbing to the temptation, then the devil's going to keep t- tempting us in that way, the same way, because he keeps winning the battle. But if we resist the temptation, this same temptation over and over and over, pretty soon the devil's going to get up because you, you won't succumb. You're resisting the temptation. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Overcome the devil. Appreciate you listening to Bible Crossfire tonight. Hope you'll listen every week. If you would like to sign up for the free one-hour phone Bible study, I will call you for a one-hour phone Bible study free of charge sometime at your convenience. I want you to call or text me at 256-682-9753. The way it works, we just you call me or text me. We find the very best time in your schedule, whatever day of the week, morning, afternoon, or evening, that we can do a free one-hour Bible study on the phone. If you're interested in that, call me or text me at 256-682-9753. Call or text me, 256-682-9753. Appreciate you listening tonight. Be sure and listen next week at the same time.